flour. It is one of those things that is in nearly everything we eat. Bread, pasta, pitas, cupcakes, and pastries all have flour. Buying flour is a pretty simple thing and it is available in every grocery store out there. But how much do we actually know about it? Do we know how it is processed? Is there more than just supermarket flour? In this podcast, we unravel the mysteries of flour. Hi, this is Dan from Return to Soil here with Nan. She's the owner of Grist and Toll. I've been really excited because I feel that the first time I bought her flour is the first time I felt like I've ever eaten bread. So we're here on the phone today and um, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about your business. Sure. So Grist and Toll is a stone mill, an authentic flour mill, and we are the first to be sourcing grain and milling locally, meaning actually near the heart of the city here in Los Angeles in close to 100 years. So the whole goal of my business is to build relationships with local farmers as close to Los Angeles as I possibly can, and to grow wheat near the city in a a responsible and sustainable way, and mill it Uh, I mill in small batches, and the whole goal of that is so that anyone who uses Bristol flour has the freshest possible product in their hands. Nice. How did you get started in this business? You know, I'm asked that question so often, (laughs) and it is one of the most difficult, believe it or not, to answer because it's a really long story, and there's no sort of straight path from me just growing up being a lifelong, very avid baker to actually being at a point in my life where I'm literally uh, creating my own flower. So I have a big history in sales and marketing, basically of luxury goods, but a lot in the actual food world. I was in the wine industry for six years. And so I've been involved not only with just baking on a personal level, but also with restaurants and chefs and tasting and menus and back of the house and front of the house. And for a very short period of time, I did bake professionally. I launched my own little independent baking business at the Studio City Farmer's Market a few years ago. And then from there, I was recruited by a local caterer who was opening a new restaurant in the Valley. And so I was the opening pastry person for that. And so it really is kind of a lifelong fascination and devotion to baking and really exploring that main ingredient, which is flour. And then there are a lot of little things along that path that made me start thinking about flour and and how it's produced and who's making it and where it's made and how it's made. And thinking about that as a baker, you know, does that matter to me or not? And ultimately, kind of the big light bulb moment was really a a television show that I had on TiVo. And it's an old episode of Ruth Reichel when she was the editor at Gourmet Magazine had uh, a PBS food show. And I had saved one of the episodes where she goes to England and she's hanging out with Richard Bertinet. And at the beginning of that episode, they walk down to the local flour mill and they discuss with the miller what he's milling. Uh, They talk about what they're going to bake. 
and ask for recommendations. They look at the flower, they feel the flower, they smell the flower. And for me, that became a pretty important moment because at that time in my life, I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do and how I could stay involved in this industry and this world that is really fascinating to me, but really do something special and of my own. And as a baker, that moment really resonated with me because we don't have that here in the United States. You can't just walk to the local mill and yet flour is everywhere. It's in every home kitchen. It's in every restaurant. Clearly, it's in every bakery. And we really don't know anything about that process anymore. So that was kind of the the really earnest beginning of me starting to ask some much more serious questions regarding milling and can it be done locally and you know, what's the status of wheat growing in California? Do we even grow it? And what's the quality? And, and that was the beginning of the journey. So um, you mentioned that in the show, they went to the local flour mill. And it's really fascinating because, as you said, I don't think I can walk to a local flour mill. At that point, when you, when you saw that, what was the first discovery that you tried to do in California? I'm assuming you're probably in Southern California at the time. Yes. So I literally just sat at the computer and I looked up uh, California wheat and I started to look up, uh, I did Google searches for terms like local milling, stone milling, small scale milling, wheat growing, uh, and just started accumulating a lot of information. And from there, I started making a few phone calls from leads that I got off of that that sounded interesting, uh, people that I would like to talk to about what they are doing and information that they might have. So at that point, how uh, nascent was the industry? Was it already kind of growing, emerging? Did it just start when you were searching for what already existed in California? If you're talking about milling on a small scale, there are still, in my opinion, it's just really whispers right now. Just a few little pockets here and there across the country. No high volume um, sorts of businesses, although I don't know that that's really the point anyway. Uh, the goal for Griston Toll is to, to be and remain a really local targeted resource. But what I found heartening was that clearly there were other people thinking the same thing I was, which is we don't know anything about wheat and flour and how it's produced. And it might not be a bad idea. It might be really fun to dive into that more and to think about what that means and what it looks like on a, on a local level. So, you know, there's a local mill in New York called Farmer Ground. There's North Carolina, Carolina Ground. There's Maine Grains in Skowhegan, Maine. There's Hayden Flour Mills in Arizona. Um, and those are the ones that get more notice and attention in publications and in online searches. So those were the first sorts of people that I reached out to, because even though our business models are definitely not all the same, the goal, the ultimate goal that we all share in common is how do we grow locally wheat on a smaller scale? And um, how do we mill that and get it into both the public's hands and professional world. Most consumers, uh, when they go to the supermarket, they see white flour and whole wheat flour. Now, uh, for your type of flour, though, what is the process from the beginning to the end 
from your wheat sourcing all the way till it's packaged and somebody buys it from your store? What's different about that process? Yeah, that's a really important and very broad question. And the answer (laughs) is a lot. (laughs) There's a lot that's different about my process and the flower. Uh, I'll give you sort of a snapshot of the the, uh, fundamentally, what are the biggest important differences between commercial roller milled flour, which is what we buy on the grocery store shelf, and small batch stone milled flour. So the actual process that's behind at least 90% of the flour that we buy in the grocery store is a process called roller milling. The whole point of that process is to make white flour. So even when you are purchasing whole wheat flour in the grocery store, that's actually a reassembled product. The berry is not all ground together. So everything begins and ends with that goal of just reaching the endosperm part of of the wheat berry. So there are three main components, the the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. So the bran is that outer, uh, it's not the hull, there is a separate hull around the wheat berry, but that outer coating on the berry. The germ is the actual little embryo, and then the endosperm is the white starchy center part. So in roller milling, what generally happens first is wheat berries are tempered. They are soaked in water or some other sort of liquid. And the goal of that is to help them separate the bran and the germ more easily from the white starchy endosperm. And so then it goes through a series of rollers, literally big rollers like pins uh, and the bran and germ are shaved away and they're either discarded or they're stored separately and then the endosperm is refined into however fine uh, a powder for the flour they're trying to create it can be further sifted for really refined flours like pastry flours um, or not quite to that level for just kind of an everyday all-purpose flour. So when they go to create a whole wheat flour, they take that white flour and they add the components back in of the bran and the germ. So unless you specifically see on a label whole berry milled or stone milled, you can be sure that that's the kind of product that you are getting. Uh, This was a really big problem at a certain point in history for us in the United States because it was not regulated that any of the nutritional value that we lost with the bran and the germ being removed ever got added back into the flour. And that's significant because the vast majority of the wheat's vitamins and minerals are in the bran and the germ. And so when you take that away and you're only working with the endosperm, you have a much less nutritious flour and people started getting sick. And that's when the government stepped in and made that requirement that the flour then be enriched before it was bagged and put on the shelf. So that's why we see that term on on bags of grocery store flour. That is regulated by the government and, and big roller mill companies are required to, again, it can be artificially added back in, but they have to add back in the nutrients that have been destroyed in in the process or lost in the roller milling process. So here at Grist and Toll, we are the antithesis of that, really. We source our grain. um, We're milling between two stones and the berries go into the hopper. 
they're fed into the millstone chamber and they come out as flour. So that's that's it. Grain goes in and flour comes out. And what that means is all of that beautiful nutritional benefit that's in the outer part of the wheat berry also gets ground and smashed into the flour. So visually, our flour is dramatically different looking than grocery store flour because it has a lot more color. And the color is very distinct and different depending on the type of grain you're looking at, whether it's a soft white wheat like Sonora or hard red wheat like Red Fife or our local Joaquin Oro um, spelt. Rye, rye has a beautiful kind of gray-blue tinge to it. Um, so they're all unique looking and feeling. And that's also reflected in their baking characteristics and their flavor. So there's a wide variance in how the flowers smell and how they taste. So how is it the supermarket has their shelf life so long? Is there anything else they're doing besides doing the enrichment? Because it seems like it lasts quite a while. Yeah, there's bleaching, you know, there's, there are, not all flour is bleached. People started to catch on that that probably wasn't a great idea. Maybe our flour didn't need to be quite that white. <laughs> um, but it's just, it's just that whole process. You know, uh, the, the bran and the germ are more volatile when they're crushed because that's where the nutritional, um, value is. So, the, you know, there are minerals and oils uh, and they will spoil and go rancid. Um, so removing that, taking that out of the equation does inherently improve the shelf life. However, I had a conversation not too long ago with a cereal chemist who came here to Griston Toll for a visit. And now that, you know, there is some buzz going on about local wheat and stone milling and smaller scale milling, some guys like this are, are, you know, we, we have their attention, so to speak. And so they're kind of asking a few more questions than they normally would. And so we had a discussion about aging flour, about storing flour. And I actually find that our grist and toll stone milled flour lasts a long, long time, much longer than you would think, since we're not removing any of the bran and the germ. And he said he has a feeling that it really has a lot to do with the fact that we don't temper our wheat, that we're not introducing water because water will make things a little bit more volatile uh, and because we have a very very dry uninterrupted process um, the other things that are great about the outer part of the wheat berry things that are there to help keep it alive antioxidants and preservatives those also get smashed into the flour so it could be any number of things um, unfortunately the bigger science world, food science world, isn't totally engaged with small-scale stone milling. So we don't have that arsenal on our side of lots of big studies that have been done and tests yet. I think that time is coming, especially with all of the attention that's on wheat and gluten properties in flour and baked goods right now. So I have a feeling more of that will come to light. But there's a lot that we don't know. Uh, we we only have kind of our gut instinct and our under basic understanding of the process and and we'll see. Right. But um, our flowers hold up really really well. Uh, you know, there's there's also there was a great seminar that unfortunately I couldn't get to that Bob Klein, who has community grains up in the Bay Area, held at his restaurant Oliveto, and he had give a talk on what he called food synergy. And a lot of people in science 
will scoff at this notion, but what they're starting to think about is many aspects of of big industrial food processing, but we're just talking about wheat today, so I'm going to relate it to that process. And basically what this gentleman was diving into was if you start with a product and you totally blow it apart and you separate all of its pieces and then you try to reassemble it later, either artificially or taking all of those actual components, do you intrinsically have exactly the same product? with the same nutritional value and flavor and everything else. And what they're saying is, no, we don't think so. And I don't know whether or not science will prove that to be true or correct. But if you think about it intellectually, it's kind of like the reason why nature wants us to eat an orange (laughs) instead of always taking vitamin C in a pill form, right? Right. We can give ourselves that nutritional value, but is it the same as when we actually eat fruits and vegetables and other things? Right. Yeah, that's interesting because like a lot of people are saying that when you eat orange, you get the fiber. So it actually slows down some of the absorptions of the sugars compared to just like drinking tons of orange juice. Kind of is a quick hit on the system, so to speak. Right. See, all of these things, we need to actually eat real food. (laughs) I think what we find more and more is that really is the crux of what a lot of our problems and and concerns are. Things become too industrialized and we move farther and farther away from food in its natural state. It's despite the nutrition label that's on that box or that container, it's not necessarily as good for us. Right. For one of your five pound bags, how long does it take to mill the flour for that? Uh, it depends on the grain. So, you know, I I gave a super brief kind of description of what we do here. And in theory, it is a very simple process. I'm, I'm uh, the entity that makes it more or less complicated. And I do that because I'm thinking like a baker and I am hopefully creating flour that's going to inspire you know, all of us who really, really love to bake and haven't had products like this. So I do not treat every grain the same way. The feed rate is different. So the speed at which the grain drops into the milling chamber is never the same on the grains. The proximity of the stones, the runner stone and the bed stone aren't set in the same place. Uh, Many, many things. We actually have uh, controls set up here that my husband installed where I literally control the revolutions, the speed of the runner stone. So we don't just have everything set at quote unquote factory settings. I can radically change the entire process from beginning to end. And I do. I don't mill everything the same way. So I don't have a set answer for you. If I'm doing something specific for a chef who wants his whole grain flour or her whole grain flour as fine as it can possibly be, I slow everything down. So it takes a lot longer. And I will also tell you that off the top, we decreased the speed of the stone by about 50%. So that means I'm I'm not producing the maximum yields that I can on this mill, but that's a very intentional decision on my part. Uh, One of the big things that's really important 
is to keep the process as cool as possible. So heat will make things more volatile and can damage the quality of the flower. And you have natural heat that's generated by, you know, two stones rubbing together. You, you can't stop that from happening. Um, but we, what you can do is slow things down so that it doesn't happen as dramatically as quickly. So again, this is a process that is very much about... Um, quality and smaller scale than it is just about pumping out large volumes of flour. So we do things deliberately that um, reduce our output, but the goal is to have a much higher quality flour for right. you to bake with. Sounds like there's some artistry in the milling. It's just not just one universal roller setting that rolls over everything. You're thinking about each different type of wheat that comes in and adjusting it differently, right? per season, per batch, I'm guessing? Yes, and I, and I have to think, obviously, all throughout the history of milling, you know, really excellent millers, that's what they did as well. But I also think in today's day and age, it matters that I, as a miller, have a baker's perspective, that that's what I bring to the table every time I turn that mill on. And I think it does make a difference in how I look at the flour, uh, because I'm feeling it all throughout the process. I'm monitoring temperature. I'm monitoring what it feels like, what it smells like as it's coming off the mill. So it's a, a really different kind of engagement. And I don't, if you're not thinking like a baker, uh, obviously I don't think we would look at the process in exactly the same way. Right. I noticed um, when I bought some of your flour, I bought the whole wheat flour, which when I opened it's very like aromatic, nutty. But I, I was fascinated to see that you later carried cake flour, which is a little more fine. It still had some of that nuttiness, but it was um, more a little, a little wider. How do you get cake flour from your milling process? Right. So that was still a whole grain flour. And, and you've been in to the shop enough now to know that I actually have made things a little more difficult for myself on a marketing perspective because I don't really label I don't really label flowers according to what you should be baking with them. Mm. I feel like that has been dictated to us by big industrial milling. We just go to the shore and we to the store and we pick a bread flour. We have no idea what's in that bag, but someone has told us it's really really great for bread, so that's what we use. I'm trying to introduce this notion of learning what the grains are. What's the difference between a hard white wheat and a soft white wheat? What's the difference between spelt and rye? And what does it mean to be called a, a land race wheat or a heritage wheat? So it means there's a lot of conversation and a lot of questions that get asked about my flour. And the educational component is really, really important. But to me, that's what makes this so wonderful. That's what makes this radically different. So I did label that one as cake flour because it was actually a mistake. Uh, one of those big, <laughs> it was a hard learning lesson for me as a rookie miller. So basically, I purchased wheat from a seed handler in Northern California. And so hard red wheat, wheat is categorized literally by the hardness or softness of the kernel. So it's either a hard wheat or a soft wheat. And it's categorized by color. It's either a red wheat or it's a white wheat. So the hard red wheats, generally speaking, are higher in protein and baking characteristics. Now, 
because I have a wine background, it didn't come as any surprise to me along the way to learn that you can't make blanket statements like that in the world of agriculture. A lot depends on the variety of wheat that's planted, the farmer that grew it, the soil, you know, microclimate, insert whatever, you know, important part of farming you want to into that sentence. But it all matters. It's entirely possible to have really high protein grain that has very, very weak gluten. So um, when I asked for a hard white wheat, I got a hard white wheat, but the protein was 9%. Hmm. So it's categorized, it was categorized as a hard white, but it had very weak baking properties. So what do I do? I mill it, I do baking tests, and I figure out what can we make with this flour. And it was a beautiful, pale, pale colored wheat, very ivory colored, the grain itself. And so the flour was a lovely cream color, and it had this amazing aroma, literally like vanilla and sugar cookie dough. I really miss having that wheat. I had a lot of customers that were very sad to see that one go. Um, but it just really lended itself to pastry baking and it had a very delicate crumb for cakes and cupcakes and it just gave a lot of um, what you would call drop cookies like chocolate chip cookies or sugar cookies or peanut butter cookies, this beautiful chew. So it had tenderness and sort of a chew. So again, um, there's a lot that you can do to try and get an idea as a miller what that wheat, how it's going to perform in the world of baking and cooking. So I generally send a sample up to the California Wheat Commission. They have a, a bread quality testing lab, so they can take a grain and put it through a lot of paces to tell us what does does the gluten property equal or match up to the high protein number? Does it high, have high mixing tolerance? Um, does it have good elasticity? Can it really trap air? Um, but at the end of the day, even with all of those charts and graphs, I really have to consider that just a snapshot of what that wheat's potential might be. And you never really know until it's actually milled and in your hands and you're doing multiple baking tests with it. That's so interesting. So that was actually just a hard white. So cake flour is just, you know, what you might use it for when you put that package out? Yes. Yeah, you know, that's, that's actually kind of nice because um, I had no idea and I used that in applications of regular like cupcakes and as we kind of talked about earlier, ramen noodles because I used that cake flour. So kind of... It, right. Yeah, kind of makes me wonder that maybe how you are presenting the flowers can enable bakers to actually break rules and not be so rigid on what a lot of us have learned. Like you must use this flour or that flour. Right. I mean, I'm really, that's best case scenario for me. And so in earlier conversations that I've had with, uh, with interviews and, and different publications, they've asked different questions that it all leads up to the same answer, which is fundamentally what's different about your flower and what's different about you, Nan, as a miller. And so for me, the question I want you to ask, Dan, when you come into Grist and Toll is, hey, Nan, here's what I'm making tonight. What are my options? And that's how you learn the differences between the grain. And that's why I really resist putting labels like bread flour, cake flour, pastry flour, or whatever, because 
one of the most challenging things when you come to Grist and Toll is my answer will always be the same. You can make anything you want from any one of these flowers as long as you understand their flavor, their aroma, and their baking properties. And then it's very subjective how you interpret what you want to do with that grain. So can you make a 100% whole grain loaf of bread from spelt? Yes, you absolutely can. Is it going to look the same as, you know, a traditional white bread flour? No, it's not. It might not be as tall. It might not have as open a crumb, but but that's where the beautiful artistry and the subjective part comes in for you. It, that might not matter to you. I am really in love with spelt. I love its nutty, mellow flavor, and it has incredible texture, especially with a lot of baked goods that people probably wouldn't expect, you know, for muffins, things like an olive oil cake or zucchini bread, all sorts of quick breads. It is so melt in your mouth tender. You would never in a million years guess that you were working with a whole grain product. Right. Recently, I uh, went into your uh, store and bought the Joaquin Oro and I baked um, a bread, a loaf of bread, tartine style long fermentation. And it was probably my favorite loaf of bread like ever. I'm not exaggerating, like ever I've eaten. Why? How come some <laughs> I these... love it. I feel the same way about that wheat. It is beautiful. And it and I, I wish you could have served that bread to everyone in Los Angeles because that Joaquin Oro is really great wheat. Um, and to be able to do a loaf of bread like that, I really feel is that's the whole point of this whole thing. It really does showcase what it means to have a single varietal flower to understand what that type of wheat can do and that how inherently beautiful the flavor is. And I'm sure the first thing you would tell anyone that you shared it with is this is 100% whole grain and this is going to blow your mind because this is not what we think of when we think of whole wheat bread. Our, there's such a stigma with that and we have such ingrained preconceived notions that it's going to be dense and it's going to be chalky and really unpleasant and bitter and uh, stone milling and sourcing the grains like this firsthand just unlocks just a whole kaleidoscope of flavors and experiences you can have. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about the Joaquin Oro. Like where did you get that from or who did you talk to to get such a mill such a great flower? So that is a good example of just Kismet. <laughs> um, Joaquin Oro, it's a modern wheat. It is not a special heritage type of wheat. Uh, there's also Joaquin. It's, it's a wheat that has been planted um, up and down California in, in different percentages. There are several grains that I would say, several hard red wheats that are pretty common uh, in their plantings up and down the state, and Joaquin is one of them. Joaquin Oro is just one, um, I guess for lack of a better term, kind of an offshoot of that same variety. And literally what happened is I got a phone call one day, and the, the, the female farmer who grew it, her name is Courtney Haybiger, she was in Pomona, and she actually went to Cal Poly Pomona Ag Program and graduated, and after graduation decided, um, hey, I'm going to see if I can actually 
be a farmer for a while. And so she leased 15 acres very close to the university and she planted nine of them to this Joaquin Oro. So I don't know how she got the seed. I don't know if one of her professors may have recommended it to her. With the low farmers, what I find a lot is, hey, I I planted this wheat um, because my buddy had it in his barn and it was free seed and I thought I'd give it a try because wheat seems really interesting and, and, you know, maybe we should be putting that into our crop rotations again, which is great. So I don't know how Courtney had the seed, but Joaquin Oro is what she planted. And when it came time to harvest, she literally said to herself, um, I really would love to sell this locally instead of on the commodities market. So she sat down at her computer and did a Google search and found Griston's home. Oh, wow. And so she, I know, isn't that, it's so random. Then she called me and said, hey, I grew this wheat and I was all ears and said, tell me all about it and send me a sample so that I can see it and uh, let's send a sample up to the California Wheat Commission lab, which we did and it performed beautifully. So Uh, The scores across the board for bread baking qualities were very, very high. And so I bought everything that she grew. And um, now, sadly, we're getting to the end of that. Um, But I have some other really beautiful wheat that was grown for me in Santa Inez that hopefully people will be just as excited about. But uh, it's it's. It's kind of crazy. I I didn't think I'd be able to find wheat that locally. And one of the things, one of the hard lessons in putting together a business like this involves the the realization that it is not easy to connect with farmers. And, And again, it's not easy partly because I decided to make this a very urban effort. I really felt very strongly that I wanted to be accessible to the general public and to the chefs and the bakers that I was hoping to interact with and and work with. So I'm not near the farmers. So that's a pretty big obstacle to begin with. But there aren't a lot of smaller scale farmers that are really working a lot with wheat. So, you know, there's no yellow pages where I can just call 50 of them randomly and say, hey, how much do you have? And if you like planting this for me this year, it's a very long, slow process. So to have something like Courtney, a gift like that just pop up out of the blue, you know, not even being open two years was was really special. And I didn't think anything like that would happen that quickly. I I mean, I'm I'm starting to settle into the fact that it's going to be probably at least five years or more before I really have, you know, a good four to five farmers that I know I can rely on and that are really interested in in being, you know, the growing part of this endeavor, which is getting better wheat and more sustainable wheat grown locally. Nice. Is your only location currently in Pasadena? Yes, that is, we mill everything here. We have our retail shop here. This is where we do the classes and the public events. Uh, I'm in a few retail shops outside of here, um, like Monsieur Marcel at the Third and Fairfax Farmers Market. Uh, We just put a big variety of our flowers at Urban Radish in downtown LA. Places like Poppy Cakes and Sierra Madre, carry a pretty good selection of our flowers too. So we're branching out a little bit, um, but to to be honest, that's really, really hard for me to do. 
because the education component is so important and it's really hard to train a lot of people that you don't work with on a daily basis to know how to answer the questions about the flour and to really think like a baker and to be able to troubleshoot. So um, that educational component keeps me from putting it really in too many places outside of grist and toll, just because I don't want it to get lost in the flower conversation. And I don't want people to walk into a shop wherever we're sold and not get the answers that they need. And I also find that even with that, um, people love coming to the mill, which is really great. So that part of, you know, the, this idea of having a local flour mill is really working that people come here they come with a lot of questions you'd be surprised how many people show up with their starter their levan <laughs> and they want us to troubleshoot uh. and and take a look it's it's great but um it's really important so i don't even know that people will let us get too far away from griston toll because it coming to the mill itself is part of that experience Right. Yeah, that, that's so true. Because I remember when I bought two different flowers from you recently, the Edison and the Joaquin Oro, I asked for our hydration percentages. And if I didn't ask you, I would be doing a lot of experimenting. And it may have been a little frustrating because I usually hydrate at 70% or lower. But just to know this education. Yeah, you're right. I think that's such a huge component on, on this pro- on this journey. Well, it really is. And, you know, I made reference to Andrew who Ross. He's the serial chemist from Oregon State University who came in not too long ago. And, and we talked about many, many different things. He said something very interesting to me, and he repeated it again on an even more recent conversation. And that is this whole culture and our whole history for about 100 years or more of flour is we really... We don't know anything at all about the wheat itself. And what he never hears when he talks with rowers and agronomists and other bigger components of the wheat chain is talk about quality and characteristics of wheat. He said, no one talks about wheat quality. He said, you were the first person that I heard mention that. And so for me, I live and die by the quality of wheat that I can source because I can't blend it with 20 different you know, types of wheat that I get from Kansas or Montana or other parts of the country. Big, big mills, they do that. The the flour is very much a mathematical equation. And that's so that they can have it look and behave basically the same every day of the week, no matter where you buy it and no matter how long it's been on that shelf. So as long as I have, let's say, the Joaquin Oro my quality is not volatile and you don't have to worry about big variances with baking characteristics. But when I switch, when I'm out of Joaquin Oro and I have that new hard red wheat variety in, it will be different. And again, I really think this is critical and this is why it's important that as we get more local milling and more mills come into place, that whoever is handling that wheat has to be able to have that knowledge to educate the customers that are going to be working with that product because it isn't the same. And those subtle differences can actually become really, really big depending on what you're making and important. So again, um, I need to be able to communicate with you anytime you come in to know everything I possibly can about each of my grains um, and how they could potentially behave with whatever it is that you're going to bake. 
Yeah, I think it's tough because so many people think of flour as a commodity, and it's not until they've had a specialty flour that they realize it. And I feel like most of the world or the U.S. is still in that commodity phase. Oh, without a doubt, it's it's we have devalued wheat and flour to such an extent. Um, you know, honestly. I never thought about it from that perspective. I, I just thought about it because I'm a baker and I want more diversity. I really want something delicious and interesting to work with. Now that I'm a miller and I'm, you know, my livelihood and the success of this business really depends on me being able to get quality grain. You know, you see the big industrial obstacles and that big machine doesn't want us to think about quality wheat. It really wants to keep that nice industrialization commodity process going but local farmers can't survive if wheat is just treated on the commodities market it our land costs are too high here in california and um, obviously the water costs have gone through the roof so to look at something as important as wheat and to try to break it down on a smaller scale is definitely not easy, not for any person in this chain. It's not easy for the farmer. It's not easy for someone like the miller. It's not easy for the consumer because you're going to pay a higher price point. Yeah. But the wheat, wheat is out of control. Um, how we grow it, how it's processed, we have completely lost control of it. And if we don't get some of that back, I think even in less than a decade, we're going to be very, very sorry. Right. Do you have a website that people can explore? Um, if you're, uh, you know, I'm sure maybe after hours or they uh, may not be blessed to be in Southern California. Yes. Yeah, so we are at www.gristandtoll.com and you just have to spell out the word and you can't use an ampersand or symbols. Um, in those searches. And uh, I will tell you that it's in the middle of a redo. <laughs> so it can and will be better. Uh, the, the the ultimate goal with the website is for it to be much more informational and um, much more interactive. So we're going to be posting more recipes. Uh, ultimately, I hope to have an actual forum that people can go to to talk with one another. So, you know, if you wanted to post a picture of that Joaquin Oro loaf and if you wanted to share what you changed about your ratios or your hydration percentage and the success that you had, um, that could also be a resource for people that can't make it to the mill or they call after hours. They could still get pretty detailed information from the website and other people that are having fun and, and using baking with the flour. So I have some pretty lofty goals for the website, but it's not easy to do, <laughs> but we're working on it. So for now, I do have um, some information a blog with some recipes just a few of our grains are posted on there right now for whatever reason I, I haven't who, my initial web builder did not give me the ability to easily go in and edit and add new items so when you see the website it's not a reflection of what we currently have in stock in the shop but hopefully all of that will be updated and more manageable very soon uh, what's your favorite thing to bake? It depends on the day of the week <laughs> and what I'm hungry for. <laughs> Although I will say I, for the past three months, 
have gone on quite a bender with laminated doughs. Mm. So I'm really jonesing for croissanto and, um, you know, Danish dough, morning bun dough, laminated brioche. And I did some heavy testing over Labor Day weekend. And I'm definitely going to do a lamination class this fall because that's a skill that is so much fun. Most people are really intimidated by it. And most people would never think of trying to incorporate whole grains in you know, croissants and things like danishes, but they are so delicious and beautiful and much easier to work with. So that's something that's coming up. So for me, it's definitely more on the pastry side, but I find that in our test kitchen here, we actually test more bread recipes. And that is literally out of necessity so that I can become a better bread baker because that's really the bulk of the questions and the troubleshooting that I get asked to do by um, regular home bakers. So yeah. I've got to become a better bread baker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already salivating as you talk about laminated doughs. <laughs> um, yeah, well, thank you so much for your time. This has been super informative. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Dan. And thanks for really making such beautiful stuff with grist and toll flour and, and telling everybody about it. That's, that's what this is all about. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Music's by George Shaw Music. If you want to learn more about grist and toll, you can visit www.gristandtoll.com. Also, you can subscribe to the podcast at the iTunes store under Return to Soil. Thanks for listening.